Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Today's special episode is by Anon Leo. Anon is a PhD candidate from the French and Italian department at Princeton University. His research interest lies in French theater in the early modern period. His current work focuses on 17th century playwright Jean Rassan's tragedies, in particular the reinvention of his classical sources. Today, Anand guides us through perhaps the greatest work of one of France's greatest dramatists in a culturally uplifting and inspiring narrative. Thank you, Gary, for the introduction and the opportunity to come on your show. In this episode, I'd like to introduce an absolute towering work of French literature that for some reason is not as widely read or staged among English-speaking audiences. When we think of English theater, we immediately associate it with William Shakespeare, who has left behind such an influential corpus that still remains the frame of reference for daily and academic discourse. If there has to be a French equivalent of the bard, Jean Racine, the composer of Fèvre, would definitely be one of the top contenders. The connection between Chassin and Shakespeare was made most notably by the romantic writer Stendhal in his work titled, well, Chassin et Shakespeare. Chassin, together with Pierre Corneille and Molière, made up the triumvirate of giants of 17th century French theater, a period considered by many as the great century in French history, not least because of the celebrated Louis XIV. This greatness of Louis XIV's reign owed much to his patronage of the arts, to which Chassin contributed significantly with his tragedies. The overwhelming majority of Chassin's oeuvre is inspired by classical sources, especially Greek mythology and Roman history. They are concerned with themes and subjects that evoke the twin Aristotelian sentiments of compassion and terror, a formulation captured on the frontispiece of Chassin's contemporaneous complete works. In these plays, you find representations of human weakness, noble sacrifice, and all-consuming inner struggle. And perhaps there's no other work that expresses the plenitude of Hassin's genius and imagination better than Fèdre, the masterpiece that Hassin himself considers to be the best among his tragedies. Fèdre was first performed on New Year's Day of 1677 at the Hôtel de Bourgogne in Paris. The main story and characters were inspired by two main classical sources which are Hippolytus by Euripides from the 5th century BCE and Phaedra by Seneca from the 1st century CE. This is the last of Hassin's profane plays, which means that after Phaedra, Hassin focused exclusively on biblical rather than secular material. There's an interesting biographical detail about Phaedra. A three-year gap separated Phaedra from Hassin's previous play, Iphigenie. During this time, the first edition of his complete works was published in 1675, two years before Fèdre made it incomplete again. Hassin biographer Raymond Picard suggests that Hassin might have at one point intended his complete works to be definitive and retire after Iphigenie, but aren't we fortunate that he didn't? 
Now that the context is out of the way, we can get to the meat and potatoes. Since this is the French history podcast, I like to depart from the usual thematic approach to literary texts and instead tell the story of Phaedra with an emphasis on the political dynastic dimension of the play and how this dimension is entwined with the deeply human drama of desire, pride, and guilt. I hope that by the end of this episode, I will have made what has to be an imperfect attempt at capturing the three Aristotelian objectives of poetry that Hassin has so masterfully accomplished, to instruct, to please, and to move. The story takes place in Troitzen in the Greek Peloponnesus. Troitzen is a kind of backwater that is part of the kingdom of Athens ruled by King Theseus. The reason why the characters find themselves in Troitzen is because of its remoteness from the political center of Athens. It is almost a site of exile and imprisonment. We know that Hippolytus was banished to Troitzen by his stepmother Phaedra because she wanted to avoid the object of her forbidden desire. She herself eventually ended up there as well because her husband Theseus, unaware of her secret love, brought her to Troitzen under Hippolytus' protection while Theseus himself is about to go on a long trip. Marisha, Theseus' political prisoner, is also in Troitzen when the drama unfolds. Since we have already mentioned a few of the characters, let us introduce them in greater detail. On top of presenting the characters' familial relations with one another, I'd like to also give a little background on their political lineage and how they intersect with one another, because this is absolutely crucial for understanding the stakes of each of the characters' decisions. I'd like to begin with Theseus. This is the same philandering playboy who slew the Minotaur with Ariadne's navigation assistance before leaving her crying her eyes out on the island of Naxos. In this play, Theseus plays the role of both the head of the household and the head of the political structure. He is the husband of Phaedra and father of Hippolytus, but by another woman. Theseus inherited the kingdom of Athens from his father Aegeus, the adoptive son of King Erechtheus. The fact that Aegeus was adopted is important, because there's a biological son of Erechtheus, Pallas, whose branch of the family, the Palantites, represents a challenge to Theseus' claim to the throne of Athens. To secure his legitimacy, Theseus has earlier on perched all the Palantites except one. And this brings me to Arisha. Arisha is the last surviving descendant of Pallas, who happens to be in Troiton at the time. Theseus, being the vindictive patriarch that he is, spared her life but condemned her to a lifetime of celibacy, forbidding anyone from marrying her to prevent the restoration of the Palantite line. I'd like to add here that Arisha is Hassin's own addition to the story, as she does not appear in Euripides' or Seneca's versions. Her presence dramatically increases the political complexity of the storyline. Next, Fedr, the eponymous heroine of the play, is a princess from the island of Crete, the daughter of King Minos and Pacify. Throughout the play, Phaedra claims to have inherited the curse of Venus, the goddess of love, through her mother Pacify. The story goes that King Minos, Phaedra's father, received a white bull from the sea god Neptune and was supposed to sacrifice it. But he loved it so much that he decided to keep it. As a punishment, Venus made his wife Pacify fall in love and subsequently have sexual relations with the bull. Therefore, when Phaedra is dealing with her own unspeakable desires, she keeps claiming that the problem runs in the family. In the play, she has a young son with Theseus. In the event of Theseus' death, this boy would have a claim to the throne of Athens. 
But because he is still in his minority, Federer would have to stand in as regent and also seek the protection of another adult male in the anarchical political climate. And this brings me to Hippolytus. He is the son of Theseus by Antiope, the queen of the Amazons, a tribe of women that is known for their chastity, a virtue that Hippolytus claims to have inherited. Between the pretenders to the Athenian throne, which are Phaedra's son, Arisha, and Hippolytus, Hippolytus has the weakest claim because his mother is a foreigner and the Greeks would not accept a king with foreign blood. That being said, Hippolytus does have a strong claim to the territory of Troitzen because Pythias, the original king of Troitzen, has recognized Hippolytus as his heir. Another indication of Hippolytus' political importance is the fact that Theseus, before he skipped town, brought Phaedra and her son to the island of Troitzen to seek Hippolytus' protection, a sign that he might be tacitly conferring the duties of caretaker king to Hippolytus as well. And this ill-fated reunion is where our story begins. At the place beginning, Theseus is missing. We are aware that Theseus has a long history of gallivanting around the world and underworld, leaving behind him a trail of slain monsters and broken hearts. But this does not stop Hippolytus from feeling concerned and raring to go on a search for his father. The contrast between Hippolytus and Theseus is interesting. One is a chaste youth who has lived a sheltered life and never seen the world. The other, a conquering hero whose martial and amorous feats are no among the Greeks. There's an evident sense of anxiety within Hippolytus that he is never going to match the reputation of his father, and he may be using the search for his father as an excuse to leave Troitzen and go on his own adventure. Another motivation for his departure is to avoid Arisha, whom he is now in love with but is banned from marrying because of his father's efforts to terminate the Palantite line. Hippolytus's instinctive reaction to love is escape, something that he claims to be the inheritance of his Amazon mother. At the same time, Phaedra confines in Anun, her nurse, about her secret passions for Hippolytus. He is wrecked by guilt because of it, tearing her hair out, contemplating suicide, and tortured by insomnia. She in continuously evokes Venus's curse and obsessively makes sacrifices to the goddess so that she would leave her alone. Christian Bier, a scholar of French theater, makes the connection between Phaedra's symptoms and the medical theories regarding mental illness and circulation during the 17th century. Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor provides fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Factor includes a variety of plans, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto, among others. Factor is perfect for a busy routine, with high-quality, healthy food that fits into your daily schedule. Mouth-watering dishes like chicken and mushroom tetrazzini, cavatappi and Italian-style pork ragu, and artichoke and spinach chicken are all on this week's menu, and you don't want to miss out on those. In addition to savory meals, Factor offers snacks and wellness shots the latter of which has become a personal favorite of mine. Go to factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code frenchhistory50 to get 50% off Factor Meals. That again is factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code frenchhistory50. Sign up today. Your stomach will thank you. Because of the conflict between Phaedra's desires and her attempts to repress them, 
The heat of her outward gaze turns inwards and enters the blood, devouring the veins, the heart, and the mind. Fer is literally burning from the inside. This is when news of her husband's death arrives. Since Theseus is at the apex of both the family and political system, announcing his death is like taking the lid off a boiling kettle. The underlying turbulence that has up to this point been kept under control is about to spill over. Along with the news of Theseus' death is the fragmentation of Greek political unity. There is now a three-way succession struggle between factions supporting their respective pretenders. First, Phaedra as regent to her young son by Theseus. Second, Arisha as the Palantite heiress. And third, Hippolytus, who is technically ineligible because of his foreign mother, but has also gathered a following. Anun, Phaedra's nurse, come political advisor at this point, convinces her to confess to Hippolytus if for no other reason than to secure the succession of her son. But Hippolytus was one step ahead of her in the confession game, but it was to Arisha. Theseus, presumed dead and his prohibition of Arisha's marriage unenforceable, Hippolytus finds the courage to make his confession. This union also effectively tips the balance of the succession crisis in Arisha's favor. So by the time Phaedra approaches Hippolytus to make her confession, the outcome is a foregone conclusion. In some of the most beautiful lines by Hassin, Phaedra makes a confession both of love and of guilt. Here Phaedra veers terribly off script. Instead of tricking Hippolytus into a political alliance as per Anun's advice, she is overtaken by her emotions and throws herself into Hippolytus' sword, asking to be killed for her sins. Anun rushes in and pulls her mistress away, before offering the consolation that Hippolytus' reticence was due to his Amazonian revulsion toward all women. In other words, it's not you, it's him. At exactly the midpoint of the play down to the line number, Theseus returns to Troitzen from the dead. This shouldn't be that surprising because in Greek mythology, the realms of the dead and living are separated by a permeable border between which one could often traverse. Theseus returns to his family and kingdom that have undergone tectonic shifts and are barely recognizable from the state where he left them. Understandably, he is welcomed by everyone except his own family. Having betrayed her husband openly, Phaedra is absolutely crushed by this news, as if she isn't tormented enough already by this point. Anun comes to the rescue again, suggesting that Phaedra save her own skin by preemptively accusing Hippolytus of doing what she did attempt to cuckold Theseus. To allay Phaedra's concerns of accusing an innocent man, Anun offers to do the dirty work of lying to Theseus for her. Phaedra, who has pretty much given up on the entire affair by now, eventually relents and tells Anun to do whatever she wishes. By this point, Theseus has already sensed that something is fishy. Instead of indulging his desire for affirmation and adoration, Phaedra is avoiding him, and Hippolytus is asking to leave Troitzen. The excuse Hippolytus gave for wanting to leave is that since his caretaker duties during Theseus' absence are over, he should fly the nest and be his own man. The real reason, however, was because he could no longer stand to be in the presence of Phaedra. It does seem that the Amazonian instinct to flee in the face of erotic sentiment is acting up again. He could have told his father the truth about Phaedra at this point, but he is such a good son that he couldn't bear to embarrass his father. In comes Anun with the slander, and Theseus believes every word of it. How else can he explain Phaedra's avoidance of him, as well as Hippolytus' impatience to escape Troitzen? 
Theseus confronts Hippolytus and tells him to his face that the whole chastity thing is a shabby act since he has been smitten by his stepmother since the day they met. Isn't that why Hippolytus has no re- interest in any other women? Hippolytus, who is as incapable of telling lies as he is ashamed to tell the truth, admits to his father that he is in love with Arisha. Talk about timing. But now Theseus would have no more of it. He is utterly convinced that Hippolytus is lying about Arisha to hide the fact of his lust for Phaedr. In his fit of anger, Theseus calls in a favor from Neptune, the sea god, to punish Hippolytus for his transgressions. But even then, it was not too late for the truth to come to light. Phaedra finally comes face to face with her husband and begs him to spare Hippolytus. When she was just about to tell him the truth, Theseus starts to rant about Hippolytus' duplicity in lying about his love for Arisha to cover up his original crime. What? He loves Arisha? Phaedra stands dumbstruck and lets the final chance of saving Hippolytus slip away. She might have felt the prick of conscience when she summoned up the last bit of energy in her to clear Hippolytus' name, but that prick of conscience did not go far enough to pierce her jealousy. So he does feel love, just not for me. And besides, the union between Hippolytus and Arisha would almost guarantee the return of the Athenian crown to the Palantide branch, dispossessing her son. So all the more she should encourage Theseus' rage against the couple. So how shall we then evaluate Phaedra's actions, or rather her inaction, in clearing Hippolytus' name? On the one hand, she is acutely aware of the monstrosity of her own desire, and the audience is deeply moved by the unrelenting guilt that it inflicts upon her. When she learns that Hippolytus is being punished unjustly because of her, she rushes in without regard for the consequences for herself to exonerate Hippolytus. But on the other hand, she is still human, unable to overcome the clutches of jealousy and pride. Hassin does not present characters that are angels and demons, but complex individuals full of self-contradictions, torn between opposing impulses and imperatives. Hassin brings added political and personal dimensions to Phaedra's deception of Theseus through the creative decision of inserting into the storyline Arisha, Phaedra's double as Hippolytus' lover. It is Arisha who eventually causes Phaedra's frustrating hesitation at the final moment when she can still spare an innocent man's life. The narrative goes into overdrive at this point. Hippolytus tells Arisha that they have to leave Troitzen immediately before Theseus and Phaedra catch up on them. Hippolytus has supporters in other kingdoms of the Peloponnesus, such as Argos and Sparta, that would protect them while they wait to fight another day. Hippolytus, always the honorable gentleman, is thoughtful of Arisha's reputation and proposes to marry her before they run away into the sunset. There's a temple of Diana, the goddess of the hunt and chastity, outside the gates of Troitzen, where they will seal the deal. Arisha will stall Theseus while Hippolytus runs ahead to arrange their nuptials and subsequent departure. Arisha protests Hippolytus's innocence to Theseus and makes a last-ditch attempt to convince him to reverse his curse. Expectedly, she leaves the scene unsuccessful. This exchange, however, has planted a nagging doubt in Theseus' mind. His unsettling thoughts are then interrupted by one dark revelation after another. Theseus learns that Anun has committed suicide, a clear indictment of her culpability in the defamation of Hippolytus. Aware of his monstrous mistake, Theseus finally utters the question, Where is my son Hippolytus? Dead, replies the messenger. We get a moving account of Hippolytus' final moments. 
While he is barreling down toward the gates of Troitzen in his chariot to leave the corrupt world of Troitzen behind, a bull-like monster rises from the sea and lunges at him. Hippolytus impales it with one stroke of the javelin and the monster collapses at the feet of Hippolytus' horses in a cloud of fire, blood, and smoke. The startled horses crash into the rocks, shattering their chariot into many pieces. Hippolytus' lifeless body continues to be dragged over the plains, the rabbit horses stopping only by the sight of his royal ancestors' tombs. In his dying breath, Hippolytus tells his companions to pass a message to Theseus, that he returns to Erisha, his voice trails off. At this time, Arisha passes by the wreckage on her way to the marriage altar and initially refuses to believe that the disfigured body before her is her fiancé. Once the tragic reality sets in, she curses the gods and drops to her knees, weakened by anguish. The messenger's narrative ends here, and Phaedra walks into the scene with poison already coursing through her veins. With her suicide, Phaedra admits her guilt and absolves Hippolytus. Despite her fading strength, she is nevertheless relieved to have restored the purity of the world tainted by her transgressions. The story ends with an enlightened Theseus resolve to redeem himself, conferring full honors to Hippolytus and embracing Arisha as his own daughter. Hippolytus, through his heroic death, has finally achieved what he has been seeking this whole time, the eternal fame of a hero that would echo through the ages. Furthermore, Arisha's adoption by Theseus effectively makes her the heir to the Athenian kingdom, thus imparting upon Hippolytus the posthumous status of co-founder by marriage of the restored Palantite dynasty. We have come to the end of the story, but I'd like to leave you with some food for thought if you're tempted to read or watch the entire play after this episode. One appeal of Hassin's tragedy lies in the tension between human agency and destiny. This goes back to the question of lineage, both political and biological, that we started with. Are Phaedra's accusations of Venus literal, figurative, or simply self-rationalizations of her own weakness? The same question can be asked of the influence of Hippolytus's Amazonian parentage. Is he also hiding his own sexual insecurities behind this fact? If not, how shall we understand the inconsistency of his love for Arisha? Another enduring enigma of the play is the intersection between political and amorous motivations. Georges Forestier, a scholar of 17th century theater, remarks that the two confessions of love are derailments from encounters that are meant to address the political fallout of Theseus' death. But are the confessions of love a degeneration of the quest for power? Or are the proposals for political alliance a pretext for displays of passion? I'm afraid I'll have to leave you with more questions than answers. Thank you for listening. This has been fun. As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.